Welcome back, everybody. This is Todd Sylvester with the Todd Sylvester Inspires Belief Cast. I have uh, an amazing guest on today. His name's Joseph Granny. Welcome. Thank you. Yes, thanks for being here. I'm so excited for uh, all of you listeners to get to know Joseph today. I want to read a little bit uh, about him. Um, Joseph Granny is a four-time New York Times bestseller author. He's a dynamic keynote speaker, a leading social scientist for business performance. Over the past 30 years, Joseph has delivered engaging keynote uh, speeches at major conferences, including HMS World Business Forum at Radio C City Music Hall. Joseph's work has been translated into 28 languages, is available in 36 countries. I mean, that in itself is amazing. Um, has generated results for 300 of the Fortune 500. Um, he's also the co-founder of the Other Side Academy, a place that's near and dear to my heart. Um, it's a it's a two-year program uh, for those that uh, at times are typically going to prison and they have an option to go to this Other Side Academy to learn these life skills and become a better person. It's one of the greatest programs out there. I've been fortunate enough to actually speak there a few times and Joseph and his wife. Uh, Todd um, is one of the favorite people that we ever get on <laughs> campus. So I'm going to put that right out there. Uh, thank you. Thank you. That, uh, that means a lot. It really does. Um, so uh, again, Joseph, thank you so much. Uh, he, you're doing amazing things in your life. You're an amazing individual. All those that know you uh, say nothing but good about you. But I also want the listeners to kind of get to know a little bit more about you kind of behind the scenes stuff. So why don't you let us know, you know, a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and a little bit about your family. Yeah, I was uh, born in Ventura, California to a family of six. Uh, my mother's an immigrant, came from Switzerland when she was uh, about 20 years old and uh, left her family behind at a time when she thought she'd probably never see them again. Uh, my wow. father uh, has been uh, always in the field of counseling and I... Uh, I and uh, in the helping industry and right. uh, always a real tender and sensitive heart and I I grew up uh, the the middle of a family of six trying to figure out uh, what I had that was of worth to anybody <laughs> or, or the world I, I think probably the one distinguishing characteristic of my growing up time you know I didn't have big traumas my family was uh, was reasonably healthy you know we yeah. have our own dysfunctions like anyone else sure. But, um, by the time I was 18 year old, I think I'd I, I'd risen to about four foot ten. <laughs> I grew up feeling, uh, you know, small and weak and uh, and insignificant and. Uh, just really lacking confidence and hyper attentive right. to the people around me, really, really sort of dependent on, you know, how can I win approval and things like that. And so that was that was quite a challenge for me to to learn to figure out who I am independent of everybody's opinions. Right. Um, so that, you know, that was the beginning of life. I, I was recruited the wrestling team uh, when I was in uh, when I was a sophomore in high school because they couldn't find anybody else in the school that weighed under 95 pounds. <laughs> and, uh, really? Yeah, they figured even if I got <clears throat> pinned, they'd lose fewer points than if they had to uh, forfeit surrender. The... Yeah, forfeit the, the round. And so, so they didn't you... care if I lost. And, okay. Yeah. So you did it? I, I did, yeah. I went out, I struggled, <laughs> I tried. It was one humiliation after another, week after week. But <laughs> but I stayed in the fight. And I, I left high school at, uh, at age 15 to start college. And so... Okay. If I wasn't already short enough, I, I now was in a college environment wow. where 
I was kind of stared at as a, as an oddity going up and down the halls. I couldn't get a date in high school, much less in college. And wow. I, but my goal was before serving a mission for my church to finish four years of school, go to medical school because my mother and I would sit and watch General Hospital, and I decided doctors were the coolest thing in the world uh, on that soap <laughs> right, opera. So, right, yeah. So I failed her. I didn't end up becoming a doctor, but uh, hopefully there's some compensation on what I did do. Yeah, so at 15, you went to college. How did that happen, and where? So I dropped out of high school. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah, I'm okay. a high school dropout. Okay, <laughs> uh, I had no idea about yeah. that. Okay. Yeah, my, my father actually promoted the idea because he figured I didn't have much more to learn in high school. I, I, I caught on to things fairly quickly, and... And so I, I went and took the GED, and I got my high school equivalency that way, and then started okay. at a local community college. Interesting. And I, yeah, it was an unusual thing, because I'm sitting here in this GED test with people who are, you know, 30, 40, 50 <laughs> years old, and here right. I am, this 15-year-old, and yeah. they're kind of staring. So anyway, I, I've never belonged where I was. <laughs> well, did you feel like your confidence increased as you got a little older? Because here you are wrestling when you said you shouldn't be wrestling. <laughs> did your confidence get stronger in high school? Because... For you to do what you did, that that would tell me you were pretty confident in that. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it was confidence or craving at that point. <laughs> right. That you know, I, I I was so desperate to try to make a mark doing something. Yeah. And I uh, yeah, it was tough to to suit up in a singlet looking the way I looked, <laughs> and uh, and you know, head out there and try again. But I think I always hoped for magic to happen. That okay. may, maybe maybe suddenly the superpower would emerge and I'd win. And and so it was it, it was part desperation, you know, part probably tenacity. Right. And I uh, and going through some of those things, I think, did help me develop some determination. I, I ended up going into business when I was 17. So okay. we started a little computer company. We used to buy kits from people named Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak and had to uh, right. solder them together to sell in our store. Okay. So yeah, at age 17, I was out uh, knocking doors trying to sell computers in our little computer store in Fairfield, California. And uh, wow. that, that was a confidence builder. That probably was the time where I started to think, you know what, I may be small, I may be skinny, I may never have a date in my life, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I know but, how to solve problems. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, those who know you and I, you know, and I know you really well as well, but uh, you live your life based off of true principles. Were you taught that at a young age? I mean, did your mom and dad instill that in you, even though you were still struggling a little bit, obviously, but where did that come from? Where did you, yeah. you know, why are those so ingrained in your life? I, I did have wonderful examples in both my mother and my father. Um, my mother, again, uh, because of her own faith commitment, left her country, left her family, came to the United States. And, you know, that uh, that example of her choices in life was impossible for me not to absorb in some way. Right. My father's the same. He's the kind of man that if he felt that God wanted him to do something tomorrow, uh, he would do it tomorrow. And it wouldn't right. matter if it meant abandoning his house or right. sacrificing everything he had. And he's just that kind of man. I, I remember we, we lived on really modest circumstances. My father was mm -hmm. a, a therapist that worked for the county, and the county didn't pay a lot of money in the Bay Area at that time. And, and uh, one day at church, uh, somebody announced we needed to build a new building, and they needed everybody to kind of pitch in and sacrifice. And after, uh, after church, he marched us all over to the leader's office. We sat outside and waited, and he came out later and announced to us that he uh, needed to come up with $1,000 to donate to help him build this building. His salary was, was not much more right, than, right. Uh, than that per month. Wow. And, I, and I, I don't think I got it at the time, but that stayed with me, and I, that this is the kind of man I was raised by. Wow, what a great example. 
That's awesome. And so uh, you, you start this business that you're doing. Was it? Did you have you and a couple friends doing it? Is that how that was? Well, I, I wasn't old <laughs> enough to open a bank account. And okay. when you're 17, <laughs> yeah. they, they won't let you open a bank account. So I had to recruit an old-looking guy. Uh, there was a young man who just returned from a, a mission living uh, with us, and I thought he he had he could grow facial hair, and he'd <laughs> probably be old enough to be able to open a bank right. account. So I, I somehow persuaded him to be part of this partnership, or at okay. least be the adult supervision. And so, yeah, Norman Van Duker and myself started uh, Byte Shop Number Forty Two. So B Y T E, that was oh, what really? the first chain of computer stores in the world was called. No way, that's awesome. Yeah. So, how long did you end up doing that? What where did that lead you to? I uh, it, it it led me to really getting an inside view of business and how it worked. Mm-hmm. I got to go inside of uh, a big equipment rental company and lawyers' offices, doctors' offices, auto parts stores, and and learn how their businesses operated because I had to write software for them. So I had right. to teach myself to to write software, and I. Uh, it was, it was like getting an MBA crash course right. uh, at a really young age. So it was exciting. It was interesting. It was challenging. I'm working with people that, to me, were the moguls of our community in Fairfield, California, the business owners and things like that. And so uh, it really developed that, that, that sense in me. I ended up serving a mission. When I came back, the business was still functioning, okay. and I worked in it. But at that point, I had a real sense that this was not the trajectory of my life. As exciting as computer programming and entrepreneurship was, that uh, that there was something else I was supposed to do. So I, I started back at college okay. and I, and eventually found this field of organizational behavior. Yeah. And I, it's it's been the most rewarding thing I can imagine, and most importantly, I think has laid the foundation for what I'm doing today at the Other Side Academy. Yeah. Wow. What a neat story. Um, so as you're as you're growing up, you're going through this. Uh, you you said you served a mission for your church. Describe that a little bit because I think you know a lot of our listeners probably don't know what that even is or what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some outside of maybe even the spiritual things? What did what did the what did your two year mission teach you? Oh boy, so <laughs> many things. Yeah. It, I, you know, I, I remember realizing in a moment uh, how insane what I was doing when I was over the Pacific flying from Los Angeles to Tahiti. So, oh, you know, your listeners are not going to sympathize much, much with me when I say that. But the Tahiti I went to was not the Tahiti that the typical vacationer goes to. I wasn't staying right. in a hotel and, right. you know, nobody was peeling grapes and dropping them <laughs> into my mouth. Right. It, it really is an ascetic kind of environment, you know, an yeah. oath of poverty kind of thing. I'm living in little huts with tin roofs. It is beautiful. It's gorgeous. The people are wonderful. But I was flying from Los Angeles. I'd never been out of the country. I hated the taste of fish. Um, I was terrified around strangers. I didn't wow. speak French or Tahitian worth a darn. Yeah. In fact, when I was in the Los Angeles airport, there were a bunch of brown-skinned people by the, the gate that I was about to board an airplane on. And I thought, oh, cool, Tahitians. And I'd been trained a little bit with some Tahitian, so I thought I'd go up and connect with these people. Right. So I, I ripped off a line of Tahitian, and they stared at me. And I and didn't seem to understand what I was saying. And then they started talking with each other. And as I listened, I thought, oh, they must be speaking Spanish. <laughs> and it wasn't until we all got on the plane that I realized, no, that was Tahitian. I thought, I'm screwed. Wow, <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah. This is hopeless. So I'm flying <laughs> over the ocean, heading towards Tahiti and thinking, how did I get myself into this? Yeah, what did I do? I'm going to a place where I don't know anybody. I don't know their language. I was terrified out of my mind. <laughs> but one of the most transformational moments then happened that when I kind of surrendered myself to that and said, this isn't about me, yeah. you know, this, this isn't about me. This is about me responding to a call to do something for other people. Uh, a quietness settled over me and this, this absolute peace and confidence wow. that, you know what, I'm not alone and I'll be yeah. okay. 
And, I, and that feeling would return to me every moment on my mission when I felt like I needed it. Wow. That's neat. Um, I love the part where you said you surrendered. You surrendered to it. You know, I think that's key of what even you're doing today. Like even people at the other side academy, it's like you've got to come in. And as moment you surrender to this process, hmm. that's when you're going to thrive. Yeah. Right. You fight it, you fight it, you fight it, you fight it. And then finally you go, okay. Yeah. Why am I here? Yeah. I love that. So you kind of figured out why you were doing this. Yeah. Yeah. And when, when, when I found that when I'm on mission, you know, when I'm focused on what I'm there to do, that, mm. I, that nothing else matters and things work out and, yeah. and I, and that I could have confidence in that. And so that, that to me was the enduring lesson of that. I think I learned to be my dad. Right. I learned to be that man I was okay. sitting next to that day that said, I know what I need to do. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to go figure it out. Yeah. And I, you know, it was a sweet, wonderful thing to learn. That's awesome. Um, how did that then translate? How has that helped you? You know, you come home from your mission, you learn such amazing things, especially that. How did that help you moving forward? Mm. It, it set a pattern for the rest of my life. So I, um, I think I could describe my life as, uh, as a series of eight, you know, if, if it's okay that I use this word, it's the word that's true for me. Um, eight revelations. Yeah, um, sure. Just moments of complete spiritual clarity. Moments where I knew what God wanted me to do. I knew what I was supposed to do in the universe, and it required a pivot. And I, mm. there, there aren't 20 of them. There aren't 100 of them. There are just a few really discrete, definable moments where where the, the path I was on was not the direction I was supposed to continue. I was supposed to take a hard left or a hard right. Yeah. And I... And so I think by serving this mission, I developed confidence that I could trust those moments. Yeah. And that even if the path wasn't clear, that, uh, that, that all things would work together. Wow, that's awesome. Okay, well, let's jump ahead just a little bit. You know, you, so you, you come back from your mission, you, you go back to college, correct? Mm -hmm. um, you graduate where and, and, and where did that lead you to? So in the, in, um, as I went back to college, I, I ended up continuing to do some consulting, kind of software development on the side to pay okay. the rent, and, to, and I eventually got dates. I, I had, a, <laughs> had a few. And well, that's good. Had to finance those. And so, <laughs> um, I, so, so as, as that was progressing and I was trying to, to feel my way forward and figure out what I was supposed to do, I, I finally realized, you know what, I'm kind of a business person. Mm -hmm. You know, I have this company. I've been doing this. And one day I heard about a seminar. And it was taught by a guy named uh, uh, Tom Peters, who'd written a book called In Search of Excellence yeah. back in the 80s. Yeah. And uh, the other uh, speaker was Stephen Covey. And, uh, and so I, all these questions are swirling in my mind. I thought I was going to be a math major, a physics major, something like that. Uh -huh. and, I, and I went to this seminar just thinking, well, I had to get a little bit of business training. And when Stephen Covey stood up and started talking about this field, the one that I'm in, organizational behavior, I, it just, it was a revelation. Uh, right. It was one of those moments. Wow. And I, I knew that was, that was what I was supposed to do with my life, that you could actually be in a field where you could think about how people behave and help them change how they behave in a way that improved lives and improved organizations. And, and you can make a living doing this. Yeah. And I thought, this is awesome. You know, who'd have known? <laughs> right. And so yeah. uh, that opened a door. I ended up connecting with Steven. Uh, he was just starting his company. I worked uh, with him for about five years and learned an enormous amount. So much yeah. of my life, including my wife, I owe to Stephen Covey. And, uh, really? Oh, that'll be a good story. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so uh, uh, that, was, that was one of those big turning points. Well, you say you connected with him. And the um, reason why I'm, I want to point this out is you had to do something to make that happen. Hmm. Like you were probably inspired by what you were hearing, 
What did you do to make that happen? Yeah, it was kind of a continuation of the youthful audacity. <laughs> so um, I had no idea how to, how to offer anything of value, but I knew how to program computers. And so I, I think I, I reasoned my way through to some reason I was <laughs> indispensable to him. Okay. Uh, it was just, uh, you know, the company had five employees at the time, so it was fairly easy to penetrate the office. And yeah. I, I walked in, found his <laughs> assistant, and I said, I, I've got something that Stephen Covey needs for his business to grow. And she arranged for me to make a presentation to the board, which was, you know, just a handful of folks. Sure, yeah. And I walked in perspiring out of my mind, just, you know, not not sure if what I was saying was insane or not. And I made a pitch to him. <laughs> and at the end, uh, Bill Murray, who was the president of his company at the time, said, uh, we've talked about it as a board. He said, we have no interest in the proposal that you made us. <laughs> but we want to hire you. And I went, all right, that's fine. You're like, and sure. Yeah, yeah win, the rest win. is history. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty funny. We don't want to, we don't want to do anything you just said. But, nope. <laughs> but they yeah. obviously saw something in you. What, what do you think that was? I, I think, uh, you know, it, probably tenacity. They, yes. they realized that the business that they were starting, they had no clue how to develop right. as well. It was all brand new to them. And so bringing people on that seemed, in Stephen's words, proactive and, yeah. you know, somebody that would be assertive would go out there and try to make things happen. Yeah. Uh, they needed help selling. Uh, Stephen had some wonderful ideas, but sales is the process through which you take a great idea to the world. And yeah. and so that's what they asked me to do. And, oh, it was, it was just one of the most horrible professional experiences because <laughs> uh, the idea was to put on this year-long uh, uh -huh. executive program in Los Angeles they flew us all down there put us up in a hotel and that was it they said go sell stuff and I would drive around really? Orange County in Los Angeles just look, looking for tall buildings and assuming <laughs> there must be somebody in there that would want to go to this and then yeah. having to thread my way through the elevator banks wow. to try to walk into some. It was awful. It was yeah. just absolutely awful. I but, can imagine. you know, you grow when you do those things. Yes, you do. Well, what's interesting to me as you're telling me this, um, you know, growing up, you had this lack of confidence. You were struggling like that. But here you are standing in front of, you know, Stephen Covey and the board, you know, and like you said, the tenacity is what they kind of fell in love with with you. I mean, that what a contrast, right? Mm -hmm. And all those experience up to this point in your life had created this, um, you know, kind of this power in you, revelations, those kind of things that you acted on. And now you're viewed as the kind of like tenacious guy versus the short, skinny, scrawny, no confident kid. That's I, I I haven't looked at my life the way you're describing, but I think that's accurate. And I think for me, I credit the tenacity less to myself to saying this is some attribute I have than to right. a confidence when when like my father that day uh, after church when I know something is right and then I'm supposed to go do it. So it's it's I less about it. I want to win a gold medal in the Olympics than it is you know God wants this done so I'm going to go do I'm it do the right thing here yeah wow that's beautiful well let's talk about how this led to you uh, meeting uh, your wife <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I uh, little company Stephen R Covey and Associates and I. Uh, Stephen had a friend who owned a houseboat and, and uh, on Lake Powell, and he convinced him to let us use it to have a company party. So the whole company went down. We're on a houseboat, and uh, there was a, a young woman working at the office who brought her sister to that. And the young woman was was a little bit too young for me to date. Okay. Um, and so when I looked at the sister, I thought, is that a younger sister or an older sister? And I finally mustered the courage to, to go approach the young woman that worked in the office and say, you know, which is it? Uh -huh. And I, anyway, I ended up approaching Cela Waldron, and I, we, we talked uh, all weekend long. I, 
one night, uh, we were all sleeping on the top of this houseboat, probably 20 of us, and uh, she and I were laying on our sleeping bags and, and literally talked from the time the sun went down till it rose the next morning. Wow. And a week later, we were engaged, and three months later, married. Really? <laughs> yeah. So it was quick. It was. Well, some people <laughs> would say that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's kind of how I, with my wife, we, we da- started dating Month and a half later, engaged. Two months after that, married. Really? A month after that. So pregnant. you were on the slow plan then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's awesome. And your wife's amazing. I've met her several times as well. She is. She's very involved in the Other Side Academy as well. Yeah. You know, she lines up the speakers and does a bunch of other things there. But she's she's a wonderful woman. Kind of lives the same principled-centered life that you do. Really does. Yeah. I, She's remarkable to me as I've watched. I think what we're doing at the Other Side Academy is more challenging for her than for me because some of my professional work kind of prepared me for some of it. And so to see how she has just thrown herself into that and yeah. connected with the students and surrendered her life to, to doing this work is, uh, is, is really overwhelming to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're very blessed. I know you know that. But, uh, well, let's talk about a little bit, you know, where that led to of what you're doing now because – you know, I'd like to get into, because I know there's so much to your story, but we're kind of jumping ahead here. But I mean, you're speaking to, you know, Fortune 500 companies, you're helping their organizations change the way they do things. I would like our listeners to kind of hear what that kind of looks like hmm. a little bit. But, you know, let's talk about how you started getting to that point in your life. Yeah. So <clears throat> I worked with Stephen Covey for five years. Okay. And then uh, one of those eight moments in my life was uh, a clear awareness. I learned what I was supposed to do there and that it was time to go uh, learn all I could about influence. And uh, and so I, I, I quit and it was terrifying. And I was newly married and we had wow. a couple of children. Yeah. And and so I, I felt such a, a, a concern about being able to provide for my family, but now was losing a fairly steady income. And I but I knew it was what needed to be done. Yeah. And so that really was the clarity I had was go learn about influence, learn everything I can about why people do what they do and how to help them change. And that was a, a 25-year process of kind of learning, uh, learning to apply it in a, in a business context. It was satisfying and rewarding. And in many ways, you know, I'd ask myself every once in a while, was this what I'm doing right now, what I was sent to go do? Yeah. And, and if the answer had been yes, I would have been fine. It was wonderful. Yeah, right. I've had a chance to work in every industry, on every continent, at every level of organizations, and, and to see how people can, can improve their prospects, not just for their career, but for their families and their personal lives by making just a few changes. Sure. And it's been just absolutely wonderful to be part of. And, I, and then one day, my, uh, two of my boys became drug addicts. And uh, so here I am, I in in the middle of this career learning about human behavior with two boys that are struggling yeah. with some of their own choices, and I uh, and I thought uh, to begin with a, a little bit smugly, you know, this this disease or this problem has met its match, um, because here I am, this guy that knows the best and brightest in the world. Right, right. So I would call all the people I knew that were mm-hmm. the luminaries in the field and were doing all the best research and and try to help throw solutions at my sons and nothing worked and it got worse and worse and darker and darker and in and out of jail and yeah. and I and it was an incredibly humbling episode. Yeah. But in the midst of that, uh, one of my boys lands in Utah County Jail with another inmate who's uh, who's there incarcerated on new charges after having spent about 13 years in prison himself. Uh, this guy is on his way to a probably 15 to 20 year prison sentence. Mm. 
And, uh, and my son, who I have these video chats with on a regular basis in jail, starts feeding him material because this guy is just sort of at this inflection point of his own life. He's saying, yeah. I hate who I am. I hate where I've landed. And yeah. I want to change my life. He becomes spiritually hungry. And, yeah. and so my son's trying to you know, answer and respond and support. And, and finally, he hands him copies of my books, one of which is called Influencer. Yeah. Great Annie. book, by the way, people. Get Thank it. You. If you don't have it, get it. It's amazing. Anyway. <laughs> Available at Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in the book, one of the case studies that we talk about is a place called Delancey Street in California, yeah. which the Other Side Academy was modeled after. And, uh, and one day my son calls me and said, hey, you know, Zach read Influencer. And uh, he read mm. about Delancey Street. And he said he wants to know if when he finishes his prison sentence, if you'd help him get there. And I, and it sounded like a stupid question to me. You know, you're asking me 15 years from now if I'll help somebody. I'm yeah. sure I'm not busy that day. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> Mark me down. <laughs> yeah, and put me I, down. I did. I answered almost that glibly. And when yeah. I hung up the phone, it was one of those eight moments. Mm. It was one of those moments where where I knew with uh, every fiber of my being that that was the wrong answer, and that that was irreverent, that was inappropriate, that wow. was not how I was supposed to respond. And so I picked up the phone. And it turns out, I mean, I look back on this and I just think, good heavens, God is reasonably smart, you know, that, that he prepared me for that moment because, because he loved Zach so much that he wanted a different opportunity available to him. And so I, he prepared me by helping me connect with Delancey Street, by helping me have access to resources, by helping me know I happen to have a, yeah. a, a brother-in-law who's the county attorney. Yeah. And there were a dozen or so different factors that all came together sure. in that moment. So I picked up the phone. I called the county attorney, Jeff Buman, one of the finest uh, people in the world, right. and said, hey, would you ever consider uh, sending a case in Utah County to Delancey Street in California? Long pause. He says, yeah. He said, yeah. But he said, you know, it's going to take a long time to line that up. you got to get the judges, the prosecutors, the public defenders. Everybody's right. got to line up, adult probation and parole. He said, so it's probably not going to work for any present case. But yeah. if you want to start the long game, let's do it. Right. I felt a little discouraged, hung sure, up the phone, yeah. and the feeling came back. And, I, and it was an imperative. It was a demand. You pick that phone back up. Wow. And I called him back, and I said, hey, Jeff, you know, maybe we'll strike out. But we got this guy, Zach, and... And I said, why don't we just try one guy? And if we strike out, we strike out. He calls me back a week later, and he says, I can't explain it. But he says, everybody's agreed. And there are miracle stories under that that if we have time, we can talk about. But yeah. it was just absolutely astounding. So Zach went, and then three others went, and the doors started to open. And, and that was when I, I understood this wasn't even just about those four that that what God wanted was for that same opportunity, not just to be here in Utah, but everywhere that's supposed to have that opportunity. So um, we were invited to the party called the Other Side Academy, and it's the best party I've ever attended. Wow, that's incredible. Um, yeah, if you're okay, can you share some of those underlying miracles that uh, we do have some time? It'd be great to hear some of that. Sure, I'll share one. So, you know, the way it works for uh, listeners that don't know in the county attorney's office is cases come in and they get assigned to different lawyers. And so uh, Zach's case came in and it was a big giant stack of felonies. I, he had been in a high-speed chase. The, the police had had to tase him. Uh, he had a car full of meth and drugs and forged documents and, 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 and guns. And, and uh, so th this guy was really on his way for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And the case drops on the, on the desk of a woman named Christine Scott, one of the, uh, the professionals in the county attorney office. Right. And uh, Christine uh, describes it later as she licked her lips. 
She said she had been a police officer years before the first time Zach had been arrested. And she said she remembered him always because he was so crazy and out of control that she drew her weapon or started to draw her weapon and thought, I may have to kill a man. Wow. And it was so traumatic for her that yeah. later when she became a lawyer and then was in the county attorney's office, the first time a Zach case came on her desk, she said, give me this dirt bag. Oh, and wow. she thought, the best service I can offer to the public is to throw him away as long as I possibly can. So every time a Zach case would come in, it was, that's for Christine, that's for Christine. Now really? she's got this stack in front yeah. of her and she's going, hallelujah, you know, <laughs> right. I, I can throw away the key this time. Yeah. And I... And so she sat there looking at this in this state of euphoria when Jeff walks into her office after having had a call with me. And, I, and he says, hey, Christine, this is your case. You've got to decide what you want to do. But uh, would you consider sending him to Delancey Street? And Christine describes afterwards, she says, I, I just had this sick feeling like, you yeah. know, over my dead body. Wow. And I... And Jeff read that, and he backed off, and he said, hey, you know, you got to make the call, and he walked out of the office. She said as the door swung shut, she had this overwhelming feeling that that was the wrong answer. You know, if you ask, is there someone that loves us and that is making plans to try to save us from our own madness somehow, um, I have absolutely no doubt. Right. And uh, later she goes out to Utah County Jail and pulls Zach out of his cell. And she says, do you know who I am? And he says, yeah, you're that. And he uses a curse word, (laughs) you know, that always throws me in jail or prison. And she said, "Uh, yes, I am. And she said, and I know who you are. And I know you want to go to Delancey Street. And uh, can you tell me why I should let you do that? Mm. And and he said, there's no reason you should let me do it. I, uh, I don't deserve anything. But I'm sick and tired of who I'm become. And the two of them became the closest friends. She would visit him almost weekly before he left for Delancey Street. And that's just one of dozens of miracles that we saw through this whole process. And so when people ask, you know, are you the co-founder of the Other Side Academy? I feel like that that's hubris for me to say so. (laughs) I know who the founder was. Yep. And I, I just get to be here. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know... You know, I'm I'm getting emotional as you're talking. I'm, I apologize. I'm over here crying as he's talking about all this stuff because I can feel it. You can't fake that. Um, I love the part, love several parts, but the part where Zach said, "There's no reason for you to send me, but I'm just I'm sick and tired of doing what I've been doing, and I don't want to yeah. do this anymore." It was again. It's kind of like that surrender piece. Like yeah. my arms are up now. I just can't keep doing this. Yeah. And it's amazing how that just, like that vulnerability to just finally admit, this is where I'm at, I need help kind of thing. That was beautiful. You know, and I guess as you say that, it's interesting because I haven't connected these dots in my life. But when my life works, it's because of surrender too. Yeah. It's me saying it's bigger than me just, you know, paying the rent this month or me getting a shiny new car or something like that. And it's when, when I surrender to something that, that wants something bigger for me than I can imagine that life really works. Yeah. It was almost like when you when you when your son first told you about this guy he wants to go you you kind of like, yeah, you know, kind of answered kind of just blew oh, it yeah. off almost. It was almost like you had to surrender that that mentality in your head and the the pride even on some level yeah. to go, "No, why I I don't want to act that way." Yeah. I'm going to get that pick that phone right back up. But what's cool is that you acted on it. You recognized it and you acted on it and you did something different. Yeah. And I think that's really good for our listeners to understand that little piece. Mm. 
is a lot of times we'll say something and we know, or we'll do something and we know it's wrong, but a lot of times we'll go, oh, and we just keep going with it instead of going, no, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to make a decision and go make it right. Yeah. I really caught that when you said that. I was really powerful. I think you're absolutely right. And I have a friend, a, a pastor who lives in Chicago, you know, a wonderful man and a tremendous influence for good in the world, who, uh, who says, uh, most visions die birthing. And that, man, that haunts wow. me. Wow. That, that so many times we get that tap on the shoulder and we know that I should do this, I should reach out, I should step up, yeah. I should make this phone call. But we're busy. Yeah. And I... Uh, and that's how they die. Uh, they die from neglect, and not because they weren't a great vision. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah. That tap on the shoulder, what is the Greeks call a kairos moment? Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's going to change your life if you'll listen to this tap, if you'll turn around and do the right thing right now hmm. kind of thing. So thank you for sharing that. It's beautiful. So, um, you know, a couple more questions here for you. And Man, I could talk all day with you. <laughs> I know you're busy, though. <laughs> you probably got to go somewhere today, I would imagine. Um, but I, you know, you're you're talking to these large organizations who, you know, they're, they're looking to you to kind of come in and I would imagine on some level change their culture, on, right? Uh-huh. Can you kind of give us a, a couple examples there where, you know, you, you know, what was one of the best moments you had with an organization where you saw like them eat up these things and sure. start changing what they were doing. Yeah, and it really, it's the setup for the rest of my life. So, okay. you know, the thesis of Vital Smarts, the company that I co-founded 30 years ago, the, yeah. the thesis is that that one of the most important, the most important determinant of the success of any organization is the behavior of its people. Yeah. And so if you have problems, if you have chronic problems or issues, you're underperforming, then there's always a human behavior issue underneath that. So figuring out why people are behaving this way and help them behave differently is, is the key to improvement. Yeah. So we've had the opportunity to work in, you know, one of the interesting ones is uh, is large global gold mining uh, operations. And so okay. they've got places in international locations around the world where, where people are dying on a regular basis in safety accidents. And so to be able to go in and help them figure out how are we behaving that's, that's creating unsafe circumstances, and then to find out the next year, you know what, 30 people didn't die that probably would have died. Yeah. And to know that our work was a part of that is, is just absolutely wonderful. Yeah. You know, and there are other things that are just more strategic. We work with a large South African, well, Africa-wide and Middle East-wide uh, telecommunications company that was stalled in its growth yeah. and help them figure out how to stop just competing on, on the price of the minutes of the phones and learn to become an innovative company by changing the behavior of their people. And, yeah. uh, you know, double the size of the company as a consequence of that is, is a really gratifying kind of thing to do. Sure. We work in healthcare where, where when people make mistakes, people die. And it's a human behavior issue as well. So, right. so I developed this fascination with and a sense of the importance of us understanding why do we act like this? Yeah. You know, you look at the spread of addiction across the United States, it's a behavioral thing, right? Right, for sure. And it's not because the, the species is different today than it was 50 years ago. DNA-wise, we're the same people. Yeah. But we're acting differently. You know, right. we're more addicted. We're fatter. We're, we're getting more disconnected. Families are declining. And yeah. all of these are choices. And so to me, the most important problems in the world are problems of human behavior. And if we can learn to be more thoughtful about those, then we can have the planet we want. Yeah. Wow, that's powerful. And I love the part where you said, these are all choices. They're choices that we're making. Yeah. And I, you know, with my clients who are addicted or whatever, you know, we teach them the power 
of choice. It's the greatest gift we've been given hmm. is to choose. Yeah. Right? We have that ability to, like, you, like again, your whole story is like that. Hmm. Like, you had moments where I shouldn't have done that and you catch it. Nope, I'm going to do something different. You made a decision. Yeah. And those decisions are what make or break us in a lot of ways. It is. But let me, let me share a little different perspective, too, that Please. I think complements. It doesn't contradict. It complements. Sure. So one, one of the things that I think the message of the social sciences from the last 70, 80 years is that um, the best way to take control of our behavior is to take control of the things that control us. Hmm. That, that like most that. of our behavior is not conscious choice. Most of our behavior is response to influences around us. Yeah. And so we don't control the vast majority of the things we do. We, we, what we can control is the environment we're in. And mm. so many times the best way to change your life is to change uh, all of these other sources of influence that are shaping your choices. Just a quick example of this. Yeah. We did a little demonstration experiment where we got a bunch of kids together, a, a soccer team, 20 guys, young, uh -huh. young boys, okay. on a Saturday and had them play soccer from 11 till 1 o'clock. And we had them do that because we wanted them to be really hungry. Oh, we yeah. brought them into the house, <laughs> and then we had every other one assigned to one of two tables. So they lined up by size, and uh, we randomly assigned then every other one to go to this or that table. And we put big, giant vats of macaroni and cheese in front of them. <laughs> and then right. I, in the two right. tables, the only thing that was different was not the macaroni and cheese. It was equally delicious at both tables. Um, but some of the kids had plates that were about four inches smaller than the others. Mm. Now the kids are starving, yeah. you know, and you and I would assume they're going to make choices, right? They're going to just eat until they're full because macaroni and cheese is delicious to yeah. a 10, 11, 12 year old think, boy. Yeah. But it turns out the kids with the larger plates ate 72% more than the kids with the smaller plates. They were not making choices. Mm. They were being influenced. Okay. The size of their plate was shaping their choice. When you ask the kids at the two tables afterwards, have you had enough? You know, are you, are you full? Every one of them said, oh, yeah, I'm just, I'm so stuffed. They all thought they were equally full. And so wow. the conscious part of what was okay. going on was precisely the same between them. They were taking a spoon, moving it mechanically to their mouth, loading their mouth, chewing and swallowing. Yes. Okay. The choices were the same. And yet a small environmental difference made an enormous difference in that. So, so what's the message? The message is, if you want to take control of your behavior, you have to take control of the things that control you. You're not stronger than the size of your plate. You're not stronger than how close or far a temptation is. You're not stronger than the people around you. Wow. You are who you're with. Right. And if you choose to be around certain people, you will behave a certain way. Wow. And so Love that's that. the enduring message of the social sciences. So it's not different than your message of choice, but it's that our choices need to be about designing a life that's going to get me to behave the way I want to behave so I can have what I want. Love that. Thank you for sharing that. That was powerful. And I agree. Yeah, it's like, you know, I, I, you know, I was an addict for 10 years, but I've been clean for almost 30. Um, I don't go to the bars. I don't. Uh, I don't go walk around people who are doing drugs. I don't rub shoulders with them. I don't. There it is. Yeah, you know what I mean. There it is. Keep my environment clean. Yeah. I don't keep a bottle of vodka in my cabinet at home. You don't. How no. interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I love what you said, and thank you for sharing that. That's that's powerful, um, and that's just, that's what you do, man. You teach people these powerful things. It's amazing. So what what's on your docket now? What's what are, what are you working on right now? Mm -hmm. What what could you share with us that you're working on? Currently, so at the other side academy, as as you're aware, Todd, uh, and I will say one more time, uh, Todd is one of the best gifts that's happened to the other side oh, academy. Uh, he'll be with us next week, and it's yeah. a blessing to our students every time you come. Thank you. Um, so I, I, the other side academy is a is a two year commitment. Uh, it's for people who've been broken for a very long time, mm -hmm. and it costs nothing. 
the portal to the Other Side Academy. In fact, there's a man sitting on it right now. It's called The Bench, as you're aware. Yeah. And uh, it's this wonderful democratization of access to the capacity to change. Uh, nobody has to pay. You don't have to have connections. You don't have to have a rich mommy or daddy. You just come in anytime, 24 hours a day, and you sit on the bench. Uh, we at the Other Side Academy want to have a bench in every city in the world that wants one. Yeah. We want to figure out how to create these kinds of self-contained, self-reliant campuses in a way that's scalable. It's a hard problem. You and I both know that creating these yeah. communities are incredibly fragile. Right. And it's a difficult thing to do. But, uh, but I know that's what God wants done, and so we're going to try to figure out as well as we can. Yeah, that's beautiful. And you just opened one up in Denver, is that correct? We will be the first quarter of 2019, so okay. we have a property there. That's what it and, was, yeah. Yeah, we've got students that have been selected uh, that are graduates of the Other Side Academy nice. that will become kind of junior staff. And uh, yeah, cool. life will start changing in Denver for some people that need it. That's amazing. And I love the 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 bench concept, right? And, I, and if I understand correct, correct if I'm wrong, you, those who go sit down there, it's not like you're going to sit there and they're in within one minute someone's talking to you. No, it's, it's almost like, like you that. let them sit there on purpose, even for a while, correct? That's right. To see what? Why do you guys do that? So it, it gives them a chance uh, to, to remind themselves that they're not there because the court sent them, because mom wants them, because they have to, the social contract we have to set up is right. you want help. And that's the reason you're here. Mm -hmm. And you're willing to do whatever it's going to take to get that. Right. And so from the very beginning, we want you to signal to the rest of the community that's about to accept you that, that you're willing to do what they're going to ask you. Because they're going to ask you to do some very, very hard things yeah. in the coming couple of years. Yeah. And so if you can't sit on a bench for a little while to show that you really want in, you probably can't do what's going to come next. Gotcha. So it's just a first sense, a, okay. a, a first, a first uh, uh, putting it down. Yeah. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, there are times where somebody might sit for a few hours. Yeah. The gentleman who's sitting on the bench right now actually walked away about a year ago. Okay. And uh, we, we won't accept you back very quickly uh, yeah. if you walk away. And so he's been sitting on the bench for two days. Wow. And he'll get accepted this morning. Wow. Um, this is a man who has dug deep and is saying, uh, I'm not the guy I was when I walked away a year ago. And he's shown it. Wow. Um, him. It's almost part of the interview. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> Without interview. That's absolutely right. Wow, that is amazing. Well, um, God, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but can you share some of the principles that you actually teach there at the other side of the academy? Because they're amazing. Like, you know, one one of my favorite ones is A helps B, A gets better. Mm. You know, so can you talk about a few of those? Yeah, certainly. So <laughs> the, the, the other side academy is really simple. We're just two things. Uh, first of all, we're a real community that has to support itself. It's not, a, it's not a pretend community where we're talking about someday going and doing real stuff. We've got a moving company to run. We have a thrift boutique to run. Right. We've got to get 120 meals cooked every day, three times a day. We've <laughs> got to get the roof fixed. We have to get the, you know, so there are hundreds and hundreds of tasks. And we don't have professionals coming in to do that. The students do it all. And so it's a self-reliant community that has to solve real problems with each other. Now, as you do that, when you're a deeply broken person, your moral flaws get revealed. And so the second thing that happens is in the evenings, the students get together and they point out their flaws to each other. Right. And so that's it. You know, do real stuff, reveal your problems, yeah. hear what your problems are, get up the next day and do it again. Yeah. And if you do that over and over again, you and I both know this, yeah. if you live in an environment of truth and love, yeah. if you live in a place where people will not hold the truth back from you for one nanosecond, but also won't give up on you, that just love you so in, in, intimately that right. they are not going to give up, yeah. 
then you change. If wow. you stay, you change. That's yeah. how people work. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we have what we call our 12 beliefs. It's not based on the 12-step program, but it's a coincidentally similar number. And, right. uh, and one of those is when A helps B, A gets better. That the way you advance in life is not by you focusing on you, it's by you focusing on the next person. Okay. And so one of the most beautiful things that happens at the Other Side Academy is when a new student arrives, the student that's put in charge of showing them the ropes is the one that got there just five minutes before them. And now suddenly you're not the newbie that's the deer in the headlights right. and wondering, you got to take care of this next guy. And you got to help him figure out how to survive here. And you want to yeah. try to retain him and pull him along and For make sure. sure that he doesn't walk away. For sure. So watching that evolve and watching people feel a sense of responsibility, but also dignity and self-respect because they matter to another human being, I think is the biggest source of healing. Wow, that's beautiful. I love what you said. When you're in an environment of truth and love, truth, you know, we, I'll say this a lot to my clients. Do you want me to be honest or nice? <laughs> Because sometimes the truth doesn't feel very good in the beginning. Yeah. But if I do care about you, I will tell you the truth, even though you might be mad at me because yeah. I'm telling you the truth. That you know. And so there's that there's that hesitancy to always go. Well, I'm not going to say that because I don't want him mad at me or her yeah. mad at me. So I love that. And you guys are really good at that at the Other Side Academy. There's a lot of truth going. We're pretty on. good at it. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, what do you call those? Uh, what is Dave call those a haircut? You know, I'm gonna give you a haircut. Yeah. With a bunch of truth. Yeah. (laughs) Take an inch off the top that you didn't need. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Well, so um, if you could, you know, maybe give our listeners who are listening to this amazing podcast. uh, This is so wonderful, by the way. I'm just feeling it, man. Um, What advice could you give someone out there that one may be struggling, two maybe even in the business side of things, like if they're trying to figure out you know, kind of how to move forward with an idea that they might have, or what advice could you give them? Yeah, I'll offer two things, okay. and we can do this by way of a challenge too. Okay. So, Wonderful. so for both of these are kind of you know distilled truths that I've come to to believe deeply, and for my professional work, and also what I'm doing now at the Other Side Academy. So the first is this: you can measure the health of a of a relationship, a team, or an organization. You can you can measure in a very simple way. Right. Any relationship in your life, you can see how healthy it is by measuring the average lag time between when people feel something and when they say it. Hmm. The longer that lag time is, okay. the less healthy that relationship is. And we all know that. You know, if, yeah. if your spouse and you are letting some simmering feud go and not getting it out in the open and dealing with it, the longer that goes on, the more mischief, the more yeah. mistrust, the more games get played. The same is true in teams. The same is true in organizations. Healthy organizations are ones where the lag time between when I see it and when I say it, when I feel it and when wow. I express it, that's you know, powerful. when I think it and when we discuss it, the lag time is as close to zero as possible. And that's what makes the Other Side Academy work. The lag time is about zero. <laughs> right. And so that's yeah. the first principle. The second is powerful. this. The second is that all lasting happiness in life, in my estimation, all lasting happiness is a function of our capacity for three things, truth, love, and connection. Connection is a product of the first two. You have no real connection without absolute, unvarnished, unmitigated truth. Right. When you and I start telling petty lies, when we start harboring things but not expressing them, we have no real connection anymore. Right, yeah. But just being blunt and honest has no virtue by itself unless it's in a context of love. Yeah, okay. Unless, unless this is coming. At the Other Side Academy, I'll hear in our games, in, our kind of, in, in the moment when people are giving feedback to each other, I'll hear more F-bombs and more expressions of love simultaneously than I have ever in my entire life. Right. 
And the two of them side by side are one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen. Because somebody is putting it out there because they want to save your life. And I don't care if I'm going to have to scream it in your face to say it. But the fact that people feel that love while that that high-velocity truth is coming at them is remarkable. Yeah. And so my invitation to those that are listening is examine your own life, examine your own relationships, examine your own, your, your own teams and, and organizations and ask yourself, what are we missing? Is it truth? You know, do we, does the lag time go on so long that we just play games and get political with each other and love, you know, are we really deeply committed enough to each other that we'll, we're willing to take emotional risks to help each other become who they're capable of? Wow, that is so powerful. Is that why you call that games at the other side of the cabinet? We're going to, it's game, it's game night kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Let's it's, talk about the games that are being played here. Absolutely. Kinda. I love that. I was always wondering why you guys called it that. Yeah. Now now it makes sense. Yeah, there are lots of meanings and that's certainly <laughs> one of them. Well, those are, that's great advice. That's a great challenge for all of us to take a inventory of ourselves and seeing where we're at on that uh, scale. I was As you're saying this, I'm thinking, okay, how quickly do I respond to my wife when I feel so? And I, I think it's pretty close. So I yeah. feel like we're doing pretty good, but we can right. improve. Rock so on. thank you for sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, if people want to reach out to you f- after hearing this podcast from you, what would be the best way to maybe, if they have a question for you or if they just want to tell you thanks, sure. what would be the best way to do that? Uh, the My email address at the other side academy is joseph at the other side academy.com. Okay. And I. The, the website also is theothersideacademy.com, so they can check that out and learn a little bit about what's going on. Professionally, the website is vitalsmarts.com, okay. V-I-T-A-L-S-M-A-R-T-S.com. Great. And then you also have, is it josephgranny.com? Um, yes. Uh, yeah, yes. That's, uh, that's just a website about some of the speaking and speaking professional about, work I which do. Which is really cool, by the way. Oh, I've, I've gone through all that. So there you go. Um, I am so inspired and so blessed to have this opportunity to speak to you today. As am I. And I know our listeners will feel the same way when they hear this. I can't thank you enough <clears throat> for the influence you have on me. And uh, I, you know, I know you, you guys have opened up the door at the other side of the academy for me to come speak from time to time. I can't tell you what a blessing, and I don't know how to express gratitude for that, but I, I want you to know how much I appreciate it. Yeah. It truly is an amazing thing. You're an amazing man living an amazing life, and I'm just grateful to rub shoulders with you from time to time. So thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, Todd. The feeling is very mutual. Great. Thank you so much. Listeners, there you go. Another amazing podcast. Please share this with anyone that you know that uh, needs to hear this. Um, I I would imagine that uh, this is going to inspire you. So let's share this message to as many people as we can. Thank you for your support. I love all of you, and I'm grateful for this opportunity to rub shoulders with you as well. Thank you.